It's another summer special from the British Broadcasting Century podcast with another fabulous author shining a light on a forgotten part of broadcasting history. Hello, I'm Paul Carenza. How are you doing? I, for one, am amazed how little there is out there about the very first black British broadcasters. Perhaps, as our guest Stephen Bourne implies, it's because we're a little uncomfortable about what we may find if we open too many closets in our broadcasting studios and our history archives. You know, about our attitudes or those of our, uh, well, let's face it, our grandparents, our great-grandparents' generation. Surely, we may think, the BBC in the 1920s and 1930s was all white, mostly male, with the only black references being rather inappropriate song titles and dodgy entertainers. But if you look away because of that, you deny yourself a whole treasure trove of brilliant, pioneering, and above all, entertaining, underappreciated stars of early broadcasting. The BBC were, I think, showcasing these artists and composers, and they don't give themselves enough credit for it. Mm. They they think it's all black and white minstrels and Kentucky minstrels, and it's not. It's a much wider, diverse, and that's the interesting thing about the BBC as an organisation. They were culturally diverse in those times. And I've tried my best to acknowledge this in my work and to get this story out there. We're bringing you these summer specials to shine a light on some marvellous books you can read this summer, perhaps, or any season. This time, The Early Black British Broadcasters with Stephen Bourne. Oh, and we have a little musical treat for you from singer Cathy Tuan, recreating a song from 1913, one of the earliest songs about wireless. There's a wireless It's all on the second summer special with me, Paul Carenza, on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, Paul Carenza calling. Hope your summer's going well. Welcome to episode 51, kicking off our second half of our first century of episodes of the British Broadcasting Century in this centenary year, as we edge ever closer to the centenary day, week, moment, I suppose, uh, of the BBC itself. Normally, uh, this podcast offers you sand timer-like detail. We bring you each grain of sand trickling down in the early broadcasting story, in which uh, timeline we're up to February of 1923 of the early BBC. But now and then, we do specials, like this run of three summer specials. We're bouncing forwards just a little to some later broadcasting history nuggets. And each of these I focused on a marvellous author. So last time Sarah Jane Stratford told us about Radio Girls. Next time Edward Sturton and others, in fact, including David Hendy and Tim Wonder, will try and sneak them on too. Tell us all about Auntie's War, the BBC in World War II. But this time I'm going to use World War II as our sort of end limit, our parameter for this tale of early black broadcasters on the BBC. Uh, Delighted to welcome to the podcast now uh, Stephen Bourne, historian of Black Britain, writer of many books, and he's going to tell us more about this uh, exciting early era of uh, radio and TV and a black presence on there. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, so, Ed, I love the fact, so your, your books, you've written many books, which we will mention, including uh, Black Poppies, Britain's Black Community in the Great War, uh, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, 1930-1945, Black in the British Frame, uh, and uh, Deep on the Roots, Trailblazers Who Changed Black British Theatre as well, quite recently, I believe. So all of those, that tells me, it's like early 20th century, but it's also entertainment, but it's these underrepresented stories that you've been finding out for us. Yes, and also important to point out, if I may, 
uh, no words ending in ology. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professor. Mm. Not work in academia. So my 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 the reason I say that to you is just to, just to simply fill you in with my background. I I come from a working class background, so I came from a family that allowed me to watch as much television as I wanted, and I grew up luckily in the 1960s as a little kid and in the 1970s but in the 60s especially I saw everything from Blue Peter to Kathy Come Home mm. it was amazing kind of formative years I guess that then uh sends you down a certain path and you sort of dig around and, and, and I guess once you find these stories is it like putting on a thread you sort of go oh there's something there and then no one else is really oh, oh it's marvelous it. because you see the whole thing about BBC radio particularly I've done extensive research and done my own little database of pre-war BBC television from Alexander Palace mainly, um, all those programmes, The Black Presence, mm. uh, that I do know. Uh, but the radio needs more attention and more s- systematic um, research. Uh, and it's it's impossible when, sorry to sound like a a chip on my shoulder but it's almost impossible to raise funds to get funding for that kind of research um if you work outside academia that's the point i'll make so if you work in isolation as an indie i'm sometimes referred to it as an independent scholar um <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lot of it is a, a lot of it has been a labor of love the books have been a labor of love now, statistically, there were, of course, not too many black British broadcasters before World War II. There were perhaps only ten or 20,000 black people living in Britain by the time broadcasting began in the early 1920s. So broadcasting was overwhelmingly a white man's game. But between 1922, when the BBC started, and 1939, say, how many black British broadcasters can you name? Try now. Can you name one? I'll let you off. I know I couldn't either. And I've been looking online deliberately and in books for such answers. So it was a joy to discover Stephen Bourne. He has been doing research that almost no one else has been doing. Stephen's books include Evelyn Dove, Britain's Black Cabaret Queen. Ah, Evelyn Dove is one name that we can mention. We'll come back to her later this episode. And he worked on a two-part BBC TV documentary in 1992 called Black and White in Colour. So, a treat to bring him to you now. I will pop up now and then, but in these long-form summer specials, it's much more interview and much less of me. But later on, I will bring you a song from Cathy Tuan. She's a singer. Uh, her other half, Graham Brown, is a listener to the podcast. Hello, Graham. Hello, Cathy. And they've discovered a song from 1913 called There's a Wireless Station Down in My Heart. And Cathy recorded it specially for this podcast. Coming up in about 20 minutes, but for now, enjoy an extended, incisive, informative chat with Stephen Bourne. So I have been tentatively dipping in to the early 1920s and 30s radio times on BBC Genome and finding black artists and a black presence going right back, almost to the very beginning. I've still yet to, to, to decide who the first was. But certainly around 1924, 25, you had Leighton and Johnston, who were very, very popular African-American cabaret um, and uh, review, stage review stars, very, and recording artists uh, in, in Britain. They were, they were American, but they were expats. Uh, they, they settled here and, and they were on the radio almost as soon as radio started. So they were there. Uh, 
Lawrence Brown, who is someone I, I've written about in the Oxford Dictionary, um, was an African-American. Um, he, he was the one that published uh, a lot of the early, researched and put, put out a lot of the early spirituals, what they used to call in the old days, Negro spirituals. And he linked up with Paul Robeson uh, in London in 1922. But, but Larry Brown was, was happened to be gay. I mean, he, he was African-American. He was an expat as well. And was, was a lot of his kind of uh, arrangements of spirituals were being broadcast on the BBC. And he would get credit but when he links up with Paul Robeson um, they appear on BBC radio from the, in the 1920s onwards and in fact Paul Robeson's uh, for those who, who are not familiar with him was probably the greatest black artist of his day singer actor political activist but Robeson is hugely popular in Britain he makes London, his home from permanent home from 1928 until the war breaks out in 39. And in 1938, I haven't been able to verify, it, but some sources claim he was voted the BBC's most popular singer, which doesn't surprise me because on radio, because you know, he, he did have that that um standing in, in this country. And then in 1939, he makes his one and only British pre-war British television appearance in a short concert, um, from, I think from Alexander Palace. There is a photograph of him with the camera, the BBC camera pointing at him. So that there is there is this going on. And, and from, nine, from the 1920s onwards, a lot of the, it was easy to find like the classical black singers, um, like African-Americans, the, the visiting African-Americans, like Marian Anderson, who was a contralto, uh, sang at all the great concert halls of Europe, including London. So I just type in her name and, and she comes up, I think 1929, from 1929, she starts appearing on BBC Radio. But she's a visitor, she doesn't live here. And But from Britain, there's the, the lovely Evelyn Dove, who I've done masses of research on, and she, she was London-born of an African father and an English mother, very middle-class background, highly educated, went to the Royal Academy of Music, hoped for a career on the concert stage, but the, the English concert stage wasn't ready for a woman of colour who was British. Marion from America and others like Roland Hayes, um, African-Americans could come and sing in our concert halls, but black British singers were pretty much discriminated against. But that did not stop Evelyn Dove from having a, a career um, in in cabaret and and, and musical theatre, and she makes her first appearance on radio, BBC Radio, in 1925. And her photograph is in the Radio Times. She's very young, but she later has a lengthy career at the BBC Radio. And there's a the, the reason that I got in touch with you is I saw the link on the BBC Hundred. Uh, items, yes. isn't it? So tell us about that. What's the link between that and Evelyn Dove? I yeah. own Evelyn Dove's archive and wonderful photographs, the scrapbook. But I, 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 I allowed them to use a photograph of, of, of Evelyn's scrapbook from 1940, the 1940 pages, where she has her own BBC radio series called Rhapsody in Black with an, with an African-American expatriate who made her home a permanent home here, Elizabeth Welch, who, are, who, if I may name drop, was a very dear friend of mine. And I did Elizabeth's archive. Mm. So I've got quite a few wow. archives 
um, in my archive. Uh, <laughs> Many archives. So they, yeah. they came together. Uh, the BBC brought Evelyn and Elizabeth together to do this radio series in 1940 called Rhapsody in Black. Sadly, none of the programmes exist. Uh, but Elizabeth had been broadcasting on radio since she arrived here in 1933. And in fact, I think one can claim that Elizabeth Welch was the first black artist to have her own, to be featured in her own radio series. And that was okay. soft and sweet music. It, she told me that it ran from 1933, I think, to 35. And it was because of soft lights and sweet music that she became a name from Land's End to John O'Groats, because everybody across the country heard her on the wireless, heard her singing in this very popular radio show where she sang with, with, um, with, a, with a sort of band. It, it, was, it was wonderful. And she did make recordings, like commercial recordings on 78s of, of some of her medleys that, that, that it's called Soft Lights and Sweet Music, the disc, you can find them on the CDs. And I read, I think, is it Elizabeth Welch is one of the first artists to perform on on television in Britain as well, from Alexander. Oh, Palace, Elizabeth, by no means was the first, but she was one of the first. In fact, there is a, a letter in her file, uh, at the written archives that state, I think it's 1937, and her agent writes to the BBC and says, sorry that Miss Welch wasn't available for television appearances from certain dates, from the very beginning up to beginning of 37. Um, but she is available now. So, of course, Elizabeth, and in fact, Elizabeth told me that she came from radio into BBC television, and she said that I was in at the baptism. She said, because we go to um, Alexander Palace and they would um, paint our faces white, um, which was kind of odd. <laughs> but she said... Yeah. They could see us on camera, and the camera was static. It it didn't. It moved forward. It could go in. It could zoom in and zoom out, but it couldn't go move around. And we and it was live. And everything was live. And 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 we had to sort of just all queue up and be quiet in the studio as each one of us in the variety show or whatever it is she was doing would come stand in front of the camera and sing sing the song. And and in fact, I interviewed her. For a BBC television documentary about that um, early experience of BBC television, but she was she was indeed in a baptism, and but there were many other uh, black artists in Britain at that time who had their own shows on BBC television before the war. It's it's ironic the term of use of baptism, thinking of of the, of the wash you would get when actually you talk about the makeup being applied to uh, to because they they had to stand out on, on mm. because obviously in those days it was technically very crude it it it, it wasn't um, anything other than that but but the, what coexisted alongside all these great artists Paul Robeson Elizabeth Welch Evelyn Dove. Um, and many, many others in those formative years were, were the Kentucky Minstrels. So the BBC, one of the most popular shows on BBC radio in 19, from 1933 and, until the late 40s was the Kentucky Minstrels. And it was blackface minstrels. Um, and I don't know if they blacked up in the radio studio, but they perpetuated that um, uh, uh, kind of what we would now criticised as racist stereotypes but it also provided work for black artists in Britain at the time so the lead 
experience in, in this radio, popular radio program were, were an African-American musical act called Scott and Whaley and, and Eddie Whaley and Harold Scott. And they were very popular. In fact, they were so popular on the radio in 33 in this radio show that the following year they made a film called The Kentucky Rules, which has recently been rediscovered and put out on, on a DVD. I watched it only a couple of weeks ago and it's quite an extraordinary film to watch. And they, they are the first black artists to play starring roles in a British film. Paul Robeson film the following year. He's not the first. They are the first. But it's a very low-budget, rough-looking sort of film. Um, but it, it's a great kind of, uh, if you're interested in, in that. And, and that, that, that series, Kentucky Minstrels, was the forerunner of what later became the, the n- notorious black-and-white minstrel show. Mm which took off in 1958. Yeah, I think for many people, it's odd to think we're thinking of even, even before then, because that feels like old BBC, but actually decades before, this is the, uh, the early... Not only of- did the Kentucky Minstrels coexist with the more dignified presence of Paul Robeson, you also, in, I found in the Radio Times in 1935, this is why it needs more excavating, Alistair Cook, um, I think it was long before he did his famous Letter from America series on the radio, doing a programme about the Negro in America. And it was a very um, intellectual kind of programme in the billing in the Radio Times. He's talking about African-American art, uh, jazz music, uh, politics, the whole thing. Sadly, again, the programme doesn't exist. Um, But even that early, 1935, the BBC are conscious that there's a serious side to uh, black people's lives. More from Stephen shortly with more stars of that era of people of colour. But a quick welcome to new listeners. Thank you for being here. How have you found us, I wonder? If you're new, do get in touch. Say hi, paul at paulcarenza.com, especially if you have a little tale to tell of early broadcasting history. While I'm here, for the centenary itself, I'm looking to do something special on the podcast, of course. I'm looking for very brief audio snippets from you. If you would like to get involved to get your voice on the podcast, we're going to do an episode, a hundred years in a hundred minutes. It might be a two-part episode because it will be quite long. It'll be, well, a hundred minutes. So I'd like you to pick a year, pick a broadcasting landmark, record a short voice memo on your phone of you talking for under a minute about that moment. Even 30 seconds or 20 seconds is fine, but ideally no more than 60 A moment of British broadcasting history doesn't have to be just the BBC because, of course, it's the birthday of all British broadcasting, commercial radio, television, satellite, whatever you want to focus on. So do you want to wax lyrical about the birth of TV in Alexandra Palace? Could you tell us what Trumpton and Camberwick Green meant to you growing up? Did you witness the moon landing in 1969 or the end of Noel's house party in 1999? All equally momentous moments, I'm sure you will momentarily agree. So record a thing under a minute. Email it to me, paul at paulcarenza.com. Links in the show notes to how you spell paul at paulcarenza.com. And you can be on our centenary special later this autumn. Speaking of which, I think I'm now allowed to say I've actually been helping BBC HQ with their inquiries. Uh, That sounds rather police-based. It's not. No, a couple of official BBC 100 programmes... Uh, have got a bit of my involvement involved, so that's nice. Uh, there's an on-screen thing that I won't mention yet, just in case it's cancelled. 
And separately, I've been helping in an off-screen capacity uh, as senior researcher uh, for one of the BBC documentaries about itself. This will be the retrospective on the first 50 years of the BBC. So it's been great to be able to help them out with some research, not just on the early years that we've covered on the podcast, but also some some post-war broadcasting nuggets as well from the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even the early 70s. From what I've seen so far on documentary, I shall reveal nothing, but you are in for a treat. It will be marvellous. You will see some things you've not seen before from the BBC archives. I should say as well, leave your expectations at the door. There is so much to cram into a short programme space. They will undoubtedly not get in everything that you may want them to. Apologies. It's the way it goes. But appreciate the gold they're bringing you. And as for the rest, I don't have time for. That is where we come in. That's what this podcast's all about. Because time means nothing here in podcast land. This is the perfect medium to bring you the full works of broadcasting history. Coming up, this episode, singing star Kathy Tuan performs exclusively for us one of the very first songs about wireless, 1913's There's a Wireless Station Down in My Heart. That is a genuine song and a genuine song title. Don't go anywhere. But more now from Stephen Bourne on the earliest black British broadcasting stars. And looking at it online, like the original Dixieland Jazz Band tour, which was 1919, that came to Britain, but that just missed broadcasting. And then the Southern Syncopated Orchestra tour, 1919 to 1921, again, they just missed broadcasting. So unless there were some jazz bands around in 22, 23, 24 that... But you see it changes it. in... Well, I, I don't know. I haven't really looked closely at jazz on early... Or black jazz on early BBC. That's a really interesting subject to follow but but certainly in the late 30s Ken Snakich Johnson begins to broadcast now Ken Ken Snakich Johnson is always erroneously described as a jazz band leader but he wasn't he was a swing band leader there is a difference uh swing music but what Ken Snakich Johnson was was famous for uh was creating and putting together Britain's first all-black swing band all-black or music orchestra in 1936. So we were originally called the Empress of Jazz, hence the, 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 the confusion, but but then I quickly changed it to Ken Snakich Johnson and his West Indian Dance Orchestra. So they're up there with Henry Hall and all those, mm. Geraldo, all those greats uh, that were on the radio. And he's on the radio. I mean, he's broadcasting, he's broadcasting live uh, with his orchestra from the Café de Paris, where he was sadly... Uh, killed in, a, in an air raid in, in, when it was bombed in 1941. And he was only 26 when he was killed. So you can imagine how young he was in 1935. But, but Ken was um, from a Guyanese middle-class background, was sent to England to William Borlase School when he was young to, 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 to be a student. He was educated here. And his father in Guyana expected him to become a lawyer. But Ken visited New York and saw Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and all these jazz greats and, and came back to London and uh, turned his back on law <laughs> and became mm. a band leader. But he, 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 had, he had no musical ability. He couldn't play an instrument. I interviewed a couple of guys uh, from his orchestra way back, about 30 years ago, and they said he couldn't, he couldn't play music. He just, he just had the elegance and the charisma to carry it off. And that came over on radio. Uh, you know, he would, although you couldn't see him or even hear him, 
his presence was felt and he they had their own radio series they were broadcasting from the Cafe de Paris um, he, I think it was scheduled to appear on television but it was cancelled because the war broke out but he was really really famous I mean with Paul Robeson and uh, Leslie Hutch Hutchinson undoubtedly they were the three probably the three most famous black men in Britain before the war uh, but that kind of music was sort of introduced in, and, and in fact there is one reference in BBC Radio in the Radio Times of Ken having his own radio programme in 1938 where he selected his favourite discs I can't remember the name of the programme but he so he was he was considered very important by the BBC mm. okay he was a showman very yeah. charismatic yeah. beautiful showman and, and I guess the BBC then was to, to entertain people was devouring artists. Yes, a, turn, a high turnover of people. So uh, this is the fact that you've got so many of these great performers. It's a natural fit for radio, isn't it? I suppose. In well, absolutely. So they, they all they all appear on radio, but they all appear on pre-war television. So Mary McKinney uh, had her own two uh, uh, television programmes, one called Ebony, another called Dark Laughter. Uh, she was included in the 1937 television demonstration film that the BBC made to promote television. So Nina's in there. Um, she was another African-American star of, of film uh, that, that worked in Britain in, at that time. Adelaide Hall, who again, if I may name drop, I knew very well. I own her archive. <laughs> she had her own nightclub in the west end the florida club and the bbc broadcast television uh, uh shows from her uh, her floors at the, at the florida club that she would take part and and so these were, were all great pioneering uh people i mean it, it it's but mainly they came from radio it, it so it's kind of interesting, as Elizabeth said. Once you became a name at the BBC and radio, it was just an easy transition into into, into pre-war television. More from Stephen in a mo. Great to shine a light on these people. Although I'd, we would be lying if we said that black people were at the heart of broadcasting. These were generally people who would come and go in a variety of fashion as entertainers as opposed to regular BBC staff members at this stage. But it's good to know that there were some of those voices on air giving us musical treats. But speaking of musical treats, time for an exclusive here. Now, in episode 32, you may recall Alan Stafford, our listener to the show, comedy history expert. He played a song for us. He discovered some sheet music. It was one of the first songs about radio called Everybody's Listening In. Well, inspired by that, listener Graham Brown got in touch. Graham is ex-BBC. And he's found sheet music for 1913's There's a Wireless Station Down in My Heart. This is nine years pre-BBC. It's seven years before any kind of broadcast radio station. So this wireless station down in my heart is more about communicating, telegraphy, the old-fashioned wire service. See uh, Wichita Line Man for further details. Well, Graham has links, uh, very strong marital links, with singer Kathy Tuin. She is from California. She's based in Orkney. So this is made there in Starling Recording Studios. But now, for the first time in many decades, lyrics by Ed Moran and Joe McCarthy, music by James Lee Monaco, and voice by Kathy Toon. There's a wireless station down in my heart. Oh, there's something nobody 
Postal cards and letters I just leave alone Never have connections on the telephone Feel
you, Kathy Tuan, for that song, 1913. How about that? And thank you, Graham Brown, for making her record it and sending it in. If you like what you hear, Kathy's released five albums, most recently Facing the Falling Sky and her most recent single, This Time save the world. Links to that on YouTube and to Kathy's website is all in our show notes. You'll also find links in the show notes to the books of our guest this week, Stephen Bourne. Do check those show notes to go beyond the audio. Here's Stephen then with more insights into the very earliest black British broadcasters on the BBC. So, and then uh, in terms of in-house people, it looks like Una Marson, 1941, when she takes over as a which becomes a producer for Calling the West Indies, I think it is, and then Caribbean Voices. Yes. Now, this needs to be clarified because Una had started working for the BBC just before the war broke out, and she'd actually worked as a researcher and possible interviewer, I think, on Picture Page, the the pre-war BBC magazine programme, and then became involved in, or was also involved in radio, so that by 1949, she was was established at the BBC, uh, again, for people that, that are not aware of her, Una was a Jamaican um, feminist uh, activist. Uh, she came to London in 1932. She was a playwright. She was the first black woman that we know of that had her own stage play produced in London um, in 1934. So she was, and she was a poet, a, a wonderful poet. So she was very much. Um, in the politics and the arts of the time. But in 1941, she wouldn't have been known by the general public because in Britain, because Call in the West Indies, which was the, the, the programme that she was assigned to as producer, the first black woman producer at the BBC, was broadcast on the old Empire Service, which led the BBC World Service. But from 1932, it was the Empire Service. And those programmes as far as I, 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 I'm aware of, were not broadcast on the home service or the light programme in, 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 at the BBC. But she did do some non-Empire service programmes, but she, she produced that series for several years. And, and, and when you look at the get, get I mean, I, I'm, I'm a geek. I own every single copy of the London Calling. I managed to get, get them from 19... When it's first... London Calling is like the Empire service version of the radio times the big big red volumes i love them. i take them off the shelf and look at them all the time yeah. but what's great the reason i got them was because uh years ago i was doing some research on the black presence on empire on the empire service and so they it tells you what who were on so elizabeth welch would have appeared on calling the west indies as a, as a guest singer um you had some welsh male voice choir you had a whole uh uh, uh, p- politicians. Oh, I mean, it, it, I can't remember half of them, but but they they were all. And Ken Snakeitch Johnson, one of the very few surviving recordings of Una Marson on Calling the West Indies is her interview with Ken Snakeitch Johnson just before he was killed in, in in an air raid. There's a lovely clip of Una Marson on YouTube. Link in our show notes. It's well worth your time. And that, it's wonderful to hear her voice and him him as well. So Calling the West Indies ran for many years, but Una was sort of involved in it during the war period and introduced at some point a segment of Calling the West Indies called Caribbean Voices. And this was absolutely vital to this story. So Caribbean Voices, the segment, enabled Una to have poetry and literature from the Caribbean read on the air. 
And so that very early generation of, of Caribbean, particularly Caribbean writers, Samuel Selvon, uh, George Figaro, I mean, all these wonderful people. And I did interview uh, uh, an actress called Pauline Henriquez who broadcast a lot of the, the, the early generation of black actors would get work on Call in the West Indies, reading the poetry uh, or, or little playlets. And Pauline met all these amazing people in the late 1940s when she started broadcasting. So it opened a lot of doors for black artists and poets and literary people in this country. That was the Caribbean Voices segment. And a lot has been written about that. Um, but Una was the one uh, that triggered that off. And in addition to calling the West Indies, just very briefly, she also made a, a programme, I think it was called Voices during the war. And she was on with T.S. Eliot and George Orwell. So the BBC considered her, not as a producer, but as a, as a, as a poet, as a literary mm. figure. So she was up there, but she was very quickly, as so many of these people were, very quickly forgotten. Loads of names here that I'd, I'd never heard of, and it's it's just great to hear them being talked about, isn't it? That's what I do. I, yeah, I yeah. introduce people to people they've never heard of. Fantastic. Well, the nice thing is, people. Very yeah, indeed. And the nice thing is that then from this, people who might be able to hear this, and uh, you know, in, in days, days, months, and years to come, can hear these names and they look up more. And uh, and because you've written various books on, like, like Evelyn Dove, you've written uh, well uh, on the books. Um, yeah. Let's do the book plug. Let's so do the I book did plug. Write, when I inherited all this or acquired all this Evelyn Dove uh, material, photographs, scrapbooks, uh, records, uh, her silver medal from the Royal Academy of Music. I mean, it's a wealth of stuff. I did manage to get a biography published. So the Evelyn Dove biography was published by Jacaranda Books in 2016. But also I've, I've tried to cover this, this story. So Black in the British Frame, which was published 20 years ago, includes a chapter about Black artists on pre-war television. Uh, my more recent book, Under Fire, uh, uh, Black Britain in Wartime, uh, the Second World War, uh, published a couple of years ago, includes a whole chapter about black the Black presence on BBC Radio during the Second World War, which in addition to Una Marston and some of the other people that I've mentioned, you know, there were, were Black classical composers having their music played, uh, you know, including Phila Shawande from Nigeria and African-American composers. You know, the BBC were, I think, showcasing th these artists and composers and they don't give themselves enough credit for it. Mm. They, they think it's all black and white minstrels and Kentucky minstrels and it's not. So much wider, diverse. And that's the interesting thing about the BBC as an organisation they were culturally diverse in those times. And I've tried my best to acknowledge this in my work and to get this story out there. And, and some people have connected with it, but I, I don't think my work is as well known as it should be, which is why I'm, I'm very thankful that you've given me this opportunity to talk a little bit about it. But that's nothing to do with me. It's to do with the subject matter because mm. it fit with the perception this is why my books uh, have been overlooked in certain in certain respects. Well, it's I, yeah, I, I do hope that they can be appreciated uh, anew because it's it does seem quite it's quite easy to think of us you know back then as being less enlightened times and therefore 
you know, less. I don't, when I saw the BBC, you know, centenary coming up, you sort of think, is it going to is it going to be a lot of Morecambe and Wise and David Attenborough and going? Well, there we can talk about them. Uh, there's various Radio One DJs that we can't talk about, yeah. uh, and there's various other parts of history that we don't open that particular cupboard closet. Or it, it, it is it right. is this fear of the unknown, but the fear that. It, this BBC centenary history, the early years, is going to throw up a lot of um, pain and racist attitudes. And you see, as early as 1941, the N-word was used in a broadcast on BBC radio um, and caused a lot of offence. And we had a black community leader in this country called Dr Howard Moody. So Dr Howard Moody fired off a letter to the BBC complaining and he got an apology and said it will not again. And I think that was one of the last times the N word, uh, an announcer got away with it um, or didn't get away with it. The BBC, I I haven't looked at any files at the BBC about uh, the use of racist language, but certainly the BBC were much more, I think, liberal in some respects than people give them credit for. Mm. Um, Certainly, although I don't, I don't want to move outside this time frame. Certainly, by the late fifties, you've got some wonderful white producers called John Gibson, Betty Davis, um, Jeffrey Britson, and a lot of the black actors and actresses from the early years that were working at the BBC then that I interviewed way back in the nineteen eighties and nineties told me um, that they created work they created opportunities for black writers to write for bbc radio and television mainly radio because they were on the radio side and that created work for us in fact a couple of black actresses uh, friends of mine who were from that generation they, they said we referred to betty davis betty with a y nothing to do with the uh, baby jane actress mm. um, she was known amongst black actors as black betty i said why did you call mm. Betty, they said because she was always creating work for us and we were thankful <laughs> that she was giving us work on BBC Radio. This was in the late 50s and throughout the 1960s. So Betty Davis needs to be looked at very closely, I mm. think, in terms of race. So there were downsides that there were dodgy attitudes and programmes which perhaps shouldn't have been made. But I, I'm always looking for the positive stories because mm. narrative that has never really been given given enough uh, um, attention. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember looking, a few episodes ago now on the podcast, we were looking at late 1922 broadcasting. There were a couple of songs broadcast. I can't remember the titles, but they were unmentionable. Let's just say that. Right? I know, there, there will but, be. Uh, there will be, because uh, they, yeah. were, they, were, they were, you know, they were what people enjoyed and what people expected. But there were also lots of black composers being broadcast as well. Samuel Coleridge Taylor, the Black Accordion uh, composer who died in 1912. You know, he was famous for Hiawatha's Wedding Feast and all these great compositions. Um, they were going right back to the 1920s, his music was included. So a lot, as I say, that mm. alongside the racism, there was the progressiveness and it, it and the acknowledgement of, of Black talent. And that needs to be addressed. Mm. To be looked at more closely during the centenary period. It's certainly something that came up in, in my chat with uh, Dr Kate Murphy on early women at the BBC was the fact that because this is such a, a brand new industry, you know, the fact the BBC arrived as literally the, the, the ability to broadcast arrived. And so you had this thing of 
well, why not start afresh? Why not welcome women as well as men? Why not welcome black talent as well as white talent? And it's open to everybody uh, because it's a whole new industry that we could, they could set the yeah. rules from the word go, I imagine. So everyone's welcome. Also, I, I discovered that pre-war television, in terms of entertainment programmes, they the BBC could easily find um, cabaret artists, artists in the music halls, artists... Um, in musical theatre to come into Alexander Palace and do television and broadcasting as well, radio and television, but also television. And so, and a lot, a lot of West End shows had black artists in them, Elizabeth Welch, you know, all these great people, and and they would be brought into to television because they were established in the West End, in in that the kind of you know field, and, and so, uh, and the BBC did not discriminate. They did not say we're not going to have any black faces on television. Off from it. I feel we've barely scratched the surface. We have barely scratched the surface. It's a huge, huge subject. But let's finger, keep our fingers crossed. Mm. The BBC acknowledged this, um, this presence in, 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 in their history during their centenary period. I wish I were an official BBC uh, podcast. Uh, you know, so do I. Happen. But instead we're an independent thing. But the only benefit Good for you. is that we will keep this online far longer than hopefully if it were a, B- a passing thing on a BBC Sounds thing, it would come and go. But this will hopefully be here for uh, for many more years yet. So, um, uh, so Amen. For, amen to that, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so um, if people were to find you online, they can find you online, find your books, find more, more information. On oh, the- yes, I do. Do have a website, <laughs> of course. uk, but Stephen with a ph. Excellent. And do they start with any book, or do we start uh, with the most recent, or we we'll just delve into? Well, the I, I think in terms, I haven't. Well, the Black in the British Frame is out of print, sadly, but Under Fire has a chapter about the BBC in it, and the Evelyn Dove book has a, has has a lot of material in it. If people are interested as an introduction to the subject then then yeah great we'll put the link to that in the uh, in the show notes which i'm sure oh thank you there you go thank you for joining us much appreciated you're welcome thank you you're welcome that's it from stephen that's it from me check out stephen's book stephenborn.co.uk that's s-t-e-p-h-e-n-b-o-u-r-n-e all in the show notes to save your spelling while online, do find us on Facebook and Twitter at BB Century. Consider supporting us. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. From £5 a month, you'll get videos. You'll see heritage walks near old broadcasting landmarks. Uh, behind the scenes, monthly written updates. All sorts of other extras await you there. On Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Thank you if you support us there. You keep the podcast going. And next time, it does go on with our third summer special. A voice you will surely know if you've heard Radio 4 in the last couple of decades. Edward Sturton, World at One, Sunday programme, plenty else besides, author of Auntie's War. He will give us an overview of the BBC and World War II, plus I'll be smuggling on some David Hendy and some Tim Wonder next time as well to give us an insight into what the BBC was doing then. All of those people, David, Tim and Edward, all have books, so for your summer reading, get a book from one of them. Or from me, I've got So a Comedian Walks Into a Church or Hark, The Biography of Christmas, there too that I would point you towards if you like a bit of cultural history in the latter or my memoir in the first or our guest of course this week Stephen Bourne has many books to inform educate and entertain us thank you Stephen keep telling those stories of yesteryear's forgotten stars thank you Kathy Tuan as well for the song and thank you for listening stay subscribed tell your friends tell your enemies as I now tell you that 
The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. We're nothing to do with the present-day BBC. This is a solo operation, so thank you for spreading word of this mighty project. We are small, but we have amazing stories to tell, so I hope you've enjoyed in this episode. We seek to inform, educate, and entertain. Well, edutain, they would say nowadays. Ugh, kids and their words. Join us next time for our last summer special on Auntie's War with Edward Sturton on the British Broadcasting Century. Oh,